Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning. Welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. It's good to see uh, everybody here today. Hope everybody has their power restored by now. Anybody not have power back? <laughs> Who? The rights don't have power back. There's something wrong about that when the <laughs> rights don't have power. So, well, uh, I hope everybody has uh, is getting their life back to normal. That's good. Before we uh, begin this morning, I don't have any specific um, uh, announcements that I need to cover. One question came up a couple of times this morning. We did miss our uh, normal communion uh, Sunday a couple of weeks ago because of the storm and uh, because of uh, various things that would have been postponed till today, but then our next scheduled communion is in two weeks, so we just decided to. Uh, skip it for the month of September, and we'll pick up with our regular schedule uh, next month on the second Sunday of October. Before we begin our time of worship this morning, uh, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you have seen us through the storm, and as we have gone through the last couple of weeks. I know that in many different ways you have used these circumstances to uh, bring to each of our minds uh, different uh, issues in our own lives and priorities we all face in dealing with these kinds of circumstances that as we go through these sorts of adversities, it gives us an opportunity to stop and reflect about what our own priorities are and that we pray that you would use this to refocus our attention on the importance of doctrine, the importance of your word, the importance of studying your word and preparing for the adversities of life ahead of time through the study and application of your word. Now, Father, we gather today as a body of believers in order to focus our attention on you, on your character, on what you have done in history and what you have provided for us in our salvation. We pray that we can put aside the things, the details, the cares, the concerns of our lives, and that during the next hour or so we can focus on you and that God the Holy Spirit would use this as a time of refreshing for us as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for our opening hymn. What is it? Hymn number 262, Holy, Holy, Holy. Please stand. Proverbs chapter 27, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day might bring. Let another praise you and not your mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. A stone is heavy and sand is a burden, but aggravation from a fool outweighs them both. Fury is cruel, and anger is a flood, but who can withstand jealousy? Better an open reprimand 
than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. A person who is full tramples on a honeycomb, but to a hungry person any bitter thing is sweet. A man wandering from his home is like a bird wandering from its nest. Oil and incense brings joy to the heart, and the sweetness of a friend is better than self-counsel. Don't abandon your friend or your father's friend, and don't go to your brother's house in your time of calamity. Better a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, But my God shall supply all your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ that God has provided everything for us, and it is through his grace that he sustains us, and he is the one who provides for us. It is also on the basis of his grace that he has uh, designed the way through which the local church is uh, supported in the ministry of the gospel, both in terms of the teaching ministry in the local church as well as through missionaries, is funded, and that is through grace giving. Giving is a response that every individual believer has uh, based on his own spiritual growth, his own spiritual life to uh, God's goodness in his life. And so giving is not a means of trying to curry favor with God, but to just uh, reflect upon what he has done and show our appreciation for who he is and all that he has provided. Scripture says, as every man purposes in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the many ways in which you have provided for us and provided for this congregation. And Father, we are just uh, thrilled that we see your grace in so many different ways. And now, Father, as we see these gifts, we pray that they would be used for your glory for the sustenance of the gospel ministry, both here and abroad. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Penalty for sin is separation from God eternally, which we call spiritual death. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross 
so that at the time that we trust in Christ as our Savior, uh, because our sins have already been paid for, that is applied to us, and we have everlasting life. However, we still sin. When we sin, it breaks that fellowship with God, and the way to recover is to confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to him, and at that instant, we are forgiven, and we can continue to move forward in the Christian life. Scripture says we are to walk in the light, walk by the Spirit, we're to abide in Christ, but any sin causes these things to stop, but through confession, we recover, they are restored, and we continue to go forward in the Christian life. So we always take a few moments to have silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that describes to us your plan in history, declares the end and the beginning. And it is on the basis of your word that we are able to orient to reality. The most fundamental form of orientation is simply to recognize that we are a sinner and that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And as we go beyond salvation... We come to grow spiritually. We learn of the various disciplines in the Christian life. We learn how to study your word. We learn the various doctrines in in the scripture. And as we do that, we become oriented more fully to your plans and purposes for our lives and how that fits within the uh, mosaic, the tapestry of of, uh, history. Father, as we continue our study today, we pray that we might gain a greater understanding of how you are working in history and how the macro history, how the trends of macro history also impact the trends in the micro history of our own lives and our own decisions, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study. It's been a couple of weeks since we uh, were in Revelation, but we're continuing our study in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 is a shift in focus from what has been going on on the earth in chapter 6 related to the six seal judgments. Just to be oriented, in the period, the future time period known as the tribulation begins sometime after the rapture of the church and will then extend to the second coming of Christ. This is a seven year period of time. And during that time, God is bringing to completion a number of things that he has been doing in history ever since Adam fell at the garden. And he is bringing to resolution and conclusion a number of things that were set in motion as far back as uh, the early chapters of Genesis. And so in many ways to understand what is happening here at the At the end of the Bible, you have to have a pretty good understanding of what happens at the beginning because that all fits together in the flow flow of history. As we've looked at this chapter, chapter 7, I've pointed out that it is uh, a response to a question that is raised at the end of chapter 6, and that is the question, who is uh, able to stand? 
who is able to stand. Let me see if I can get the right thing there. Who can stand? Who can survive these judgments? Since we've all gone through this hurricane the last few weeks, we see the power, just a small part of the power that can be unleashed through the forces of God's creation. If that storm had actually reached a Category 4 level as they had predicted, and if it had hit just a little bit to the left or to the right, it would have probably uh, wiped out at least 40% of the uh, refining capacity of this country and brought the gasoline production, gasoline distribution system in this country to its knees and would have had a tremendous consequences as it, as it was or as it is. People in some areas of, of the south in this country are experiencing uh, gas shortages, just a just a little bit where there may be uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, lines at the gas pumps of 60, 70 cars as people are waiting for uh, hours to be able to gas up simply because the whole uh, distribution network was interrupted because of this particular storm. And this was only a Category 2 storm, and it didn't do that much damage to the refineries, but they did have to shut down. So when we come to a uh, the analysis of a series of judgments, as we saw in the sixth seal judgments, with that last seal judgment involving uh, uh, earthquakes, involving the uh, asteroid showers onto the earth and the destruction of uh, massive destruction of much on the earth, we can see that that will completely wipe out a lot of the uh, electrical grids, a lot of the distribution networks. We're going to see in the next series of judgments, in the trumpet judgments, how it affects shipping, how that affects transportation, how it's going to affect food and water and all of these things. And this is an incredibly tragic time. And so when people go through these kinds of situations, and uh, perhaps you were not as affected by the storm as some people were. We all have friends, I think, that probably... Uh, live or operate down in areas that were uh, much more strongly affected by the storm, a lot of times it's a good way for us to, or opportunity for us to point people and direct their thinking towards God's plan and God's purposes as they ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Why? How can God allow this to happen? And even though people may not be asking that question just now, as they deal with the, the rubble and as they deal with the loss and the shift in their lives, and there are, of course, many folks who, who may have lost just about everything they had except their own lives, uh, it's an opportunity that God may use for us to uh, be a witness or testimony to them. And it may not be this particular adversity. It may be other adversities that come along. But we have to be able to answer that question, uh, why this? Why me? Why did God allow this to happen? And this strikes at a fundamental question that's often raised uh, by those who are skeptics of Christianity, those who just, just want to attack Christianity, and that is a resolution of what is called the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And so I've been pointing out that in this chapter, we see that God allows suffering and evil to continue in history for a reason. And just because we don't know the reason, or just because our finite minds can't quite get around uh, the reason, uh, or the, thing, the data that is brought forth to, to fully explain it, 
doesn't mean that we can't under, understand uh, the answer. And the answer is going to come down to God's character. And I have set this up this way, that God's character in terms of his righteousness, his justice, his love, which in some is his integrity, his goodness, is what is being questioned. How can a loving God let this happen to his creatures? And this might be intensified even more in the tribulation period when you have, uh, when you have believers who are, who become believers during the tribulation period and go through these kinds of uh, judgments. But God's character nevertheless is demonstrated in these kinds of judgments. And it's demonstrated most fully in a universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time because there are aspects to God's character, his love, his grace, his faithfulness that are manifested in the midst of suffering that we would not see, we would not learn about in other ways. And so God is, for a time, allowing evil, suffering to continue uh, And ultimately, he will judge evil and end suffering. And that is one of the themes of the book of Revelation. For at the end, we see how God brings this judgment together and finalizes it. So I also pointed out that what we learn from this is God is still in control, even though there seems to be a lot of chaos in our lives at times and things are unpredictable and we don't know what's going to happen. We make our plans, but they don't work out, and God has something else in mind. We understand from these prophecies that God is in control. And second, we learn that God has a purpose, even though we may not fully comprehend it. The answer to this question is then seen in terms of four doctrines that we've looked at. One, the nature of God. We have to truly understand that. Too often people minimize it. Second, the nature of evil and suffering. Again, they minimize what evil is and the consequences of evil. And there are many who uh, scoff at the concept of evil or depravity, and this is only due to human arrogance. And then third, we dealt with the nature of justice. And then fourth, the divine purpose of history. And I'm spending a little more time on that because when we look at this in terms of the divine purpose of history, that's what we're dealing with in Revelation. Revelation is bringing history to its conclusion, and so this enables us to understand why God does certain things the way he does in history, that he has set things up a certain way. And even though you may think, well, I don't, I don't like history that much, and I never had much uh, uh, very good history teachers, and I don't really appreciate history, nevertheless, your life is just as much a part of history as the life of someone who uh, walks across the pages of any biography or, uh, or historical work. We all have our own history that plays a role within the broad structure of God's plan and purposes, and that fits within the context of God's, uh, of the angelic conflict. So we've looked at this a couple of different ways and how God is working out certain things in history. And two, two areas where this is important comes across in the Old Testament in terms of these covenants that God made with Israel. The first is the Abrahamic covenant where God promised land, seed, and blessing to uh, Abraham, a specific piece of real estate, uh, descendants that would be more numerous than the sand of the seashore or the stars of the sky, and that through his descendants all would be blessed. 
that seed promise is later expanded in the Davidic covenant, which God made with King David that he would promise him an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now, to understand what is happening in Revelation 7 and why suddenly beginning in verse 4 we have this return to the 12 tribes of Israel and God saving 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes, we have to understand that God's plan for Israel is one of those major uh, major threads that run through history because of the promises that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant and also to David. It is the Abrahamic covenant, as we've gone through so many times, that sets up a broad structure for all of history. And so the Jews are, and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are at the very center of history and at the center of God's plan. And just because Israel has now temporarily been uh, set aside because of their rejection of God's plan through the Messiah, the rejection of Christ at the first coming, it is not a permanent uh, rejection, and they have not been permanently set aside. This is the whole point of uh, the Apostle Paul is making in Romans chapter 9 through 11, and that they have been temporarily set aside, and that uh, now is the time of the Gentiles, but when the times of the Gentiles comes to fruition, comes to fulfillment, then there is going to be a return emphasis in history to Israel, and that's where uh, Revelation 7 fits in. We see this shift that occurs here that God is restoring his emphasis to Israel and there is this distinction between Israel and the church. Now, in our last lesson as we went through this, I emphasized the fact that prior to the cross, Satan's strategy in the angelic conflict and in history was to uh, prevent God from fulfilling his promise to man through the promises to Abraham and David to bring the seed, the Messiah, to the earth who would go to the cross and uh, pay the price for our salvation. And so we studied how in various ways in the Old Testament Satan tried to block that. It happened with the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. It happened as the various uh, kings in the northern empire of Israel became more and more involved in apostasy, and the worst form was uh, during the period of Ahab. Ahab married Jezebel, their daughter Athaliah, and at one point the descendants of David were narrowed down to one who was hidden away and eventually became, uh, came out and became king. And the line continued, that God continued. And what we learn from this in terms of a basic doctrine is just the faithfulness of God. God is true to his promise. And when we study these things, the thing we learn is that God is true to his promise to Israel. Therefore, God is true to his promise to us. And we can be secure in his promise, in his word, no matter what the circumstances may be. Now, another line of evidence that we go to in order to understand why God brings out these 144,000 Jewish evangelists is related to another uh, prophecy in the Old Testament that's uh, one of my favorites, one of the most significant detailed promises, prophecies, and one that we've looked at many times before, and that is the prophecy contained in Daniel chapter 9. So turn with me 
in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9. And again, what we see here is that as we seek to understand and comprehend a particular passage of Scripture, we realize that it's set within a historical context, a historical situation, and we can't really understand it if we don't have a broader understanding of of history and a broader understanding of God's plan in history, especially for Israel, and what God has revealed in other passages of Scripture. And this prophecy that begins in verse... um, down in about verse, let me see, the prophecy itself begins in about verse 24, uh, but the situation begins in verse 1, that this, this prophecy fits this context. And what we see is that Daniel is an old man by this time. He was originally taken to Babylon around 605 B.C. as a young man, probably 14, 15 years of age, and he was uh, taken with a number of other young Jewish aristocrats as uh, captives by Nebuchadnezzar in his first invasion of Judea, and they were taken back to Babylon, and there they were to be trained to operate and function within the bureaucracy of Babylon. So they were going to go through a, a complete cultural overhaul and a complete, complete retraining, which would include being trained in all of the uh, religious systems uh, of Babylon. So they would become paganized, and the first chapters of Daniel talk about how Daniel and his three friends uh, held out against this. So that was the beginning, and now as we come to the end period, Daniel has been reading in Jeremiah, and he understands the times and the calendar, and he knows that the time of their the Jewish dispersal, captivity in Babylon is about to end. And we read in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And this is based on Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. And in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, God specifically spelled out that because the Jews had violated their annual Sabbath, that he would take them, uh, they, they would be disciplined, they would be removed from the land so that the land would enjoy its rests and th- those Sabbath rests. Now, a Sabbath year occurred once every seven years. And for much of Israel's history, they did not observe this. During that sabbatical year, they were to take the entire year off and not work, showing that they were trusting in God to provide for all of their all of their needs and to sustain them. And so they had violated this for some 70 sabbatical years. So if a sabbatical year takes place once every seven years, and you have 70 of them, then 70 times 7 involves 490 years. We're going to have a little math class this morning to work our way through this. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21, we read, to fulfill, that this was done to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years 
were complete. So this 70 times 7, our 490-year framework, looked backward into their previous history of failure to observe the Sabbath. And as Daniel focuses on Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, and Deuteronomy, or, I mean, in some of the passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he realizes that God had promised that the Israelites would be disciplined, they would be taken out of the land, but when they turned back to the Lord in humility and prayer and confession of sin, then God would remember his covenant and God would restore them to, to the land. And so he is going to begin to pray in verse 11, a prayer of confession, in fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 to 42. Uh, in Leviticus 26, we read, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And that's an anthropopathism. simply means that God is going to reinforce the covenant. It doesn't mean he forgot it. God doesn't forget. Uh, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. So in verse 11, Daniel confesses. He says, yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and his departed is not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. What's happening here is that in the context of the Old Testament promises within the law, the cursing and blessing in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30, God had promised that and, and predicted that Israel would be disobedient and that he would end up taking them from the land, that is, the land that God had promised them in discipline, but that he would restore them to the land and that he would uh, bring them back from all the nations. Now, that is a key phrase, that he would bring them back from all the nations and from the four corners of the earth, from all the nations to which he had sent them. Now, the discipline that occurred on Israel in the Old Testament occurred in, in, at two key events. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722, and those ten tribes were then uh, taken away. They were uh, redistributed. They were resettled in various parts of the Assyrian Empire. They were just scattered all over the Assyrian Empire, everywhere from India to what is today southern Russia, the various uh, Ikistan countries up there, you know, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and all those various stands and Afghanistan and every, all of those areas. And so th those tribes were just scattered into, and, and they became known as the, quote, lost tribes of Israel. They weren't lost. God knew where they were number one, and number two, as we've studied, many of them, when they saw the Assyrians coming, understood God's plan, headed south to Judea, and so those tribes did not completely lose their identity and, and their integrity. And so that was the first 
deportation. The second occurs in the, when Judah, the southern kingdom, was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And when that occurred, those who were in the southern kingdom were taken, but they were kept together. Unlike the Assyrians who wanted to destroy ethnic uh, integrity by scattering and mixing the peoples together, the Babylonians just kept all the Jews together and they moved to Babylon. And the uh, Jewish community in Babylon, in fact, continued even up to and through New Testament times and was one of the strongest areas of, uh, of Judaism in the ancient world. Three centers of Judaism existed, one in, in Babylon, one in uh, Jerusalem and Palestine, as it was known then, and one in Alexandria in Egypt. These were the three main centers of, uh, of Judaism at the time of Christ and subsequent to the time of Christ. Now, when... Uh, God answers Daniel's prayers, we'll see in a minute, and brought them back. They don't get brought back from everywhere they were scattered. The Those who return, in fact, the initial return under Zerubbabel only involved 5,000 Jews. It was a very small group that came back under under Zerubbabel in 538. And you had very few, and they they all came back from Babylon. They didn't come back from everywhere. But the promise that Daniel's going to hear in Deuteronomy is that God's going to bring them back from all over the earth to where he has scattered them. So that promise of a universal or worldwide regathering has really never happened in history. Now, I'm making that point because we'll come back to it later, but I just want to set the stage right now. So in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying that God would return them to the land because he sees that those 70 years are just about finished. And so God answers his prayer even while he is praying and sends, sends an angel Gabriel to him in order to reveal the timetable for Israel's history to, to Daniel. Just as there were 490 years in Israel's past where they had failed to fulfill the uh, Mosaic law in terms of the Sabbath years, there will also be a future period of 490 years that God is decreeing for Israel. And this is explained in Daniel 9.24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy weeks is not what it says literally. It says 70 periods of seven. It could be 70 days, 70 weeks, 70 years. Uh, 70 days wouldn't make sense. That would be 490, or, or 70 days would be 70 days. 70 uh, literal weeks would be 490 days. That's a little over a year and a half. That wouldn't make sense. So it's understood to be 70 periods of seven years, just which would be 490 years, just as the previous 490 years of sabbatical uh, rejection or disobedience had, had taken place. So it's 490 years have been decreed for your people and your holy city. That specifically God is talking to, or Gabriel is talking to Daniel, and he's saying that is your people. That's, that's the Jews. It's nobody else. For your people and your holy city, and then six things are mentioned uh, which will be completed or finalized during this period. First of all, to finish the transgression Second, to make an end of sin. The word there is in the plural, indicating the actual uh, sins of idolatry that had taken place throughout Israel's history of their rejected God. 
to make atonement for iniquity. This is the uh, final realization of atonement for Israel's sins, uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That would be to establish a righteous kingdom, which had, will happen only when the Messiah comes. To seal up vision and prophecy, that means to bring to conclusion the prophecies that had been given by God related to Israel's future. And then last, to anoint the most holy place would be the final temple, which is the millennial temple that is described in Ezekiel chapters 40 and following. So we have this period that God describes, this, this, this framework, chronology, for the future of Israel, 490 years. And now he's going to break this down. He says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, this is what kicks it off, there is a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Not a decree to just send some Jews back to Jerusalem. That's what uh, happened under, uh, under Darius, and that's what happens uh, when, uh, when Adan, Adan, um, excuse me, uh, uh, Zerubbabel first goes back. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to what? To restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And that with, and later on, if you look down, it says to be built again with plaza and moat. That's all of its defenses. Plaza and moat indicates its walls, everything will be finalized so it can stand, uh, stand alone. So this is not talking about some of the earlier decrees that uh, came about that just allowed Jews to go back to the land, but a specific decree that would allow Jews to go back and rebuild the fortifications. From the issuing of this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Okay, now we're going to have a time frame so we can know exactly when the Messiah is going to come. And this will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, seven and 62 is 69. So the 69 weeks leaves another week hanging there. So the first part of this is going to include from the decree to Messiah the Prince, two sections, a seven-week period of 49 years and a 62-week period. And then it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, so that's the seven weeks and then the 62 weeks, or actually it it would also be then after the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Just a note there. It's after the 69th week. It's not during the 69th week. It's not when the 69th week ends. At the end of the 69th week, it's after it. So that time frame is going to end, and then the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. And he, the he there refers back to the prince who is to come, uh, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's that last seven-year period, that 70th week. That's what I'm always referring to when I talk about Daniel's 70th week. That is the tribulation period, that seven-year period. So but he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That reference to the prince who is to come is a reference to the Antichrist. See, the people of the prince who is to come destroy the city the first time. That was in A.D. 70 when uh, the Roman legions uh, of Titus uh, defeated Israel and destroyed the temple. That occurred in A.D. 70. But the, the prince who is to come is identified there as a Roman, someone of Western European extraction. 
He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice. That's the midpoint of the tribulation. Grain offering on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, and one that is decreed is poured out on the one who who makes desolate. Okay, let's just look at this in terms of the basic chronology uh, chart that's familiar to most of us, okay? There's the initial decree to restore. This is when Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah back to finalize and to complete the building of the walls around Jerusalem. This occurred on March the 5th, 444 B.C. We know this because these kinds of decrees usually occurred at the beginning of a month under the, uh, in the Pers- way in which the Persian government operated. And we can trace the year to a specific time, and so this would have been the beginning of their, uh, their month. So this would have occurred March the 5th, 444 B.C., and it's stated in, Math, in Deuteronomy 2, 1 through 3. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I, that's Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in the presence of the king before. So that helps us date this. This is when it occurs. So you have this initial period that's 69 weeks, and it's for you and your people. So it's for Israel. That is the historical purpose of this time period is what God is doing in the uh, history of Israel in, in their, uh, as God is working out the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. So we have uh, 7 times 7 is 49 years, 62 times 7 is 434 years, which comes to 483 years. Now, a prophetic year in Scripture is 360 uh, days. It's a lunar year model, and we can get that a number of ways, and I'm not going to go into that now. But if you multiply 483 times 360, you come up with 173,880 days. So Daniel 9.26 said that after the 173,880 days, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Okay, now back to our chart. So we have our initial period, and we have um, the total period is 490 years. But when you take the 69th period, you have 173,880 days. It's seven years short. What happened to the other years? See, from the March the 5th, 444, until March the 30th, A.D. 33, which is when Jesus entered Jerusalem, recognized as a king, the people saying, Hosanna, it's what we refer to as Palm Sunday, in Luke 19, 28 to 40, that was 173,880 days. You just figure it out on a calendar. So what happens to the other seven years? Now, there are those who try to say, well, that's just an idealized number, or that just sort of occurred here or it occurred there. But if we're going to interpret the first part of this literally, the second part is literal. And the second part means that God must still have a purpose for Israel and within Jewish history that is yet unfulfilled, that is designed to bring to completion those six things mentioned in Daniel 9.24. And so when we ask the question, what happens to those other seven years, they are put off into the future, Daniel 9.27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with the many for one week, so that that one-week period that is future 
is for Israel. It is not for the church. In the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave. Because God is doing something different with the church. The church is every believer since the day of Pentecost, which occurred uh, 50 days after the crucifixion in 33 A.D. And since then, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you're an ethnic Jew, you become part of the body of Christ. This is one reason why I believe that the church is not going to be here during the tribulation is because the purpose of the tribulation is to bring to completion this plan that God has for Israel's salvation, not the church. And so the church is just in the way. So the church has to be removed at the rapture so that God can restore his emphasis to Israel during this final one-week period and this is that future period known as, as the tribulation. Now, as I pointed out last time, up to the cross, Satan's plan was to try to wipe out Israel. and to, I mean, uh, wipe out the seed of David, the line of David, the seed of Abraham, to prevent the Messiah from coming. But once the Messiah came and died on the cross... Satan has to go back and re, uh, completely re-engineer his whole strategy because he failed there. So now what he has to do is he, he to, to try to win against God, he has to destroy Israel so that uh, uh, God can't fulfill his promises to Israel. And if he can destroy Israel before God fulfills those promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then Satan thinks he can win. So this means that Israel, even though they are in an apostate position today, is still at the center of history because God is still has to fulfill those promises that he once made that he would give that land to, he didn't just say the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob themselves would possess that land. That involves their resurrection and eventual possession of that particular land. So in the Old Testament, there were different ways in which God uh, sought to um, destroy Israel. We saw the attacks on the Davidic... Well, I hit the thing too many times. We saw these attacks against the Davidic seed that occurred, especially at the time of Ahab, then both the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions were attempts to destroy Israel and to take them out of the land. Uh, at the time of Christ, you have Herod's murder of the infants in Matthew chapter 2, where uh, Herod is trying to destroy the Messiah so that the Messiah can't come. Satan is working behind the scenes. And then, of course, we have uh, Satan's great uh, failure he thought that if he would, could kill the Messiah, that he would win. But the, his uh, engineering of the assassination of the Messiah actually led to his defeat. God uh, outmaneuvered him in a brilliant stroke at that point, And Satan's attempt to kill Christ uh, actually led to his own defeat. But since then, since then what we have is the rise of anti-Semitism. You have Roman anti-Semitism that, are, that occurs <coughs> and just the uh, terrible things that they did to the Jews in both the, uh, <coughs> both the rebellion, the Jewish rebellion that was 66 to 70, 
And then the next great rebellion, which is called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which occurred about 130 to 135 A.D., which was led by a rabbi by the name of Akiva. Rabbi Akiva had his own uh, Messiah that he was promoting and led tremendous, most of the Jews uh, focused on him and centered on him. And the Romans, again, under Hadrian, had to send down uh, troops to crush this Jewish revolt. And Hadrian was just as uh, angry about this as he could be and attempted afterward to destroy and wipe out all evidence of both Judaism and Christianity in the land. He changed the name of Jerusalem to a Roman name, Aeolia Capitolina. He uh, tried to uh, destroy any places that were revered by Christians or Jews by building pagan temples on those sites and basically uh, his attempt to destroy uh, all of the Jews. He took uh, 22,000 Jews that had participated in the um, in the Jewish revolt and had them killed in the uh, all of them executed down at Caesarea by the sea, and then they took Rabbi Akiva out and they heated these huge metal combs till they were red hot, and then they used those red hot combs to strip his skin away and they skinned him alive. They were lovely people. So, but that was just the beginning of the rise of anti-Semitism, and then through the Middle Ages, you had uh, various. Uh, Christian groups in the, in the medieval period who blamed the Jews for uh, crucifying Christ. They accused the Jews of blood libel, whether they were actually killing Jewish babies to mix the blood with the uh, uh, flour to make unleavened bread for, the, uh, uh, for Passover and all of these kinds of things. And there were these various uh, assaults and pogroms on the Jews throughout uh, the Middle Ages. I think one of the greatest attacks against Israel is Islam. And Islam, though, in some periods of its history, wasn't strongly anti-Semitic. It certainly has become that way. And the Quran is a book that is, um, at its very core, anti-Israel. In Islamic eschatology, uh, Muhammad's going to come back, or actually when Jesus comes back, he's going to have the uh, Muslims kill all the Jews and all the Christians. So that is what they look forward to, is having all of us wiped out. This is, this is Satan's plan uh, to, destroy, uh, to destroy Israel and to wipe them out. Now recently, for those of you who uh, like to read a little history, but some of the more technical books out there on the restoration of the Jews to the land over the last couple of hundred years might be a little bit dry and uh, boring. I have been reading... Uh, Leon Uris's novel, The Exodus, uh, the last week or so. And I'm kind of, I've wanted to read it for several years. I'm kind of glad I'm reading it now because I've done so much of the uh, historical study that it makes a tremendous amount of sense, but it packages excellent history uh, in terms of the 19th and 20th century return of Israel, to, of the Jews to the land, in a very readable format. So I would, uh, I would recommend that particular book. It's, uh, some people like to read their history in a little more entertaining way uh, like that. But see, God's plan is to restore Israel uh, to the land and to bring uh, back an emphasis on Israel. And this is why we have this passage in uh, Revelation chapter 7 that there is a restoration of Israel. And so God is going to, after the tribulation begins, God is going to call out 14,000 
or 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to make 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will go forth and take the gospel to primarily to Israel, but also to uh, Gentiles. And it is the very presence of Israel today and in the future that is part of God's testimony of his faithfulness to his word and that he can bring about that which he has promised. In Jeremiah 31, 35, we read, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, that is those ordinances related to sunrise and sunset and the moon and the stars, he says, if those depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, uh, Israel will be a nation before God forever as long as the sun rises, the sun sets, and you have uh, stars in the sky, etc. Now, in the Old Testament, God had promised that he would destroy Israel for their disobedience, but that he would also restore them. Passages such as Leviticus 26, uh, 31 through 35, describes how God would lay waste to their cities and their sanctuaries, and he would scatter them among the nations, Leviticus 26:33. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's lands. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. That's a background for Daniel's prayer in uh, Daniel chapter 9. And then God would ultimately restore them. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, God promises that he will, in 427, he will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there he says, you will serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God. From where? As the prophecy is that as the Jews are scattered in all the nations around the earth, then while they're out there in those nations, they will seek the Lord and they will find him. They will turn to him in that position of captivity and being scattered in their diaspora. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 3 emphasizes this. It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord and obey his voice. Then what happens? Verse 3, he will gather you again from all the nations, not just from Babylon, but from all the nations. See, they still had a major scattering or diaspora during the time of the New Testament because only a small percentage of Jews living outside of the land had returned, and I believe they returned simply so there would be a Jewish national presence in the land for the coming of the Messiah to see whether they would accept or reject him. Now, the reason I emphasize this is because Isaiah 11.11 is a very important prophecy that is often overlooked. In Isaiah 11, we read, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Now, the that day is, in context, is referring to the millennial kingdom. That, that is what occurs when the Messiah comes at the end of the tribulation. 
It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand the second time. So what this passage is saying is at the end of the tribulation, the Lord is going to restore Israel a second time. Now, how many more times before that will, can the Lord restore Israel from all the nations? Only once. He can't do it a bunch of times. There's going to be one restoration, and this is a restoration in belief that occurs at the end of the tribulation. But it implies that there is another worldwide restoration that occurs before that. Well, it couldn't have been the restoration in 586, because that restoration was primarily just from Babylon. It wasn't worldwide. So this is an incredible prophecy. The Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam, Shinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. Now, in the process of bringing them back as a regenerate nation, there's going to have to be an unregenerate nation there already to fulfill the Daniel 9 prophecy, to have a, a temple there that the Antichrist can desecrate and to have a nation there that the Antichrist can enter into a covenant with. So that implies that first restoration. I believe that's what's going on right now. We had that first, it's a worldwide restoration. We have Jews coming from, uh, from all over the world constantly being brought back to Israel, in fact, on August the 20th, it was reported in the Israel News Network that a decision was made in Israel that could be called historic. The government has resolved to allow the remaining 7,232 members of the Bnei Menashe, that's Manasseh, for those of you who don't understand Hebrew, the members of the B'nai, that's the sons, B'nai Benesheh Jewish community in India to immigrate to Israel. The B'nai Benesheh claimed descent from the tribe of Benesheh, one of the ten tribes exiled from the land of Israel by the Assyrian Empire over 2,700 years ago. They reside primarily in the Indian states of Mizoram and Manipur along India's border with Burma and Bangladesh. In recent years, over 800 members of the community have made Aliyah, that means immigration, have made Aliyah thanks largely to the efforts of Shavai Israel, a Jerusalem-based organization that assists lost Jews seeking to return uh, to the Jewish people. The B'nai Meshet in Israel reside mainly in Kiryat Arba, uh, Beit El, and Ophrah. So the point I'm making in all of this is that for the first time in history, we're seeing a worldwide regathering of Jews, not in belief, but in unbelief. But what the scriptures indicate is that the initial return has to be in unbelief because you have an apostate nation that's going to enter into this contract with uh, the Antichrist. And it's going to build a tribulation temple there that the Antichrist is going to desecrate. Now, does that mean that what we're seeing today is a fulfillment of prophecy, per se? No, but it is in a sense, you could say that, but it's not related to the church age or the end of the church age at all. I mean, this can be happening for another hundred years. So it doesn't, you can't look at this and say, ah, this means the rapture is around the corner. Can't say that. All it says is God is setting the stage for what's going to happen next in history, which is the tribulation and the return uh, to that, to those circumstances. And so for, God has to do certain things 
at the at the near the end of the church age, and near the end is a relative term, near the end of the church age, in order to prepare things for the tribulation. Now, the rapture could have occurred in 1917 when Clarence Larkin wrote his book on dispensational truth. And when he wrote that, he said, if the Lord came back for the church today, it would take 70 or 80 years before the tribulation could begin because so many things would have to happen to get the Jews back in the land and for there to be a nation there to sign a contract with the Antichrist, etc. And, uh, of course, now more time has gone by and more of these things have taken place. It's stage setting for what comes next. But we still don't know when the curtain's going to go up. It could be in the next hour or in the next century. It's still imminent, but not. Uh, there's no necessary timetable. But during this period, God is going to bring Israel to salvation through turmoil and incredible testing. This is described in passages like Ezekiel 20, 32, and 33 where it is described as with fury poured out. God says, as I live, verse 33, I surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. That's, that's the wrath of God during the tribulation period. This is uh, also mentioned in the next verse, in verse 34. I'll bring you out from the peoples, the Goyim, the Gentiles, gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. So just skipping on some of these other passages, Ezekiel 20:38. I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. So there's going to be this judgment on saved and unsaved Jews at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, Ezekiel 22:17. Uh, through 19 also indicates that there would be this uh, furnace terminology is used again in relation to what God is doing to Israel in the tribulation period. Uh, Ezekiel 22:20. yes, I will gather you, or verse 21, uh, 22, 21, yes, I will gather you and blow on you with fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in its midst. So God is using these judgments to bring about his purpose in restoring Israel to the land. Uh, Ezekiel 22, <coughs> 22, again, uses the phrase, pouring out my fury upon you. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 23 and 24, I'll take you, in verse 24, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. And in these passages, it says, and then I will meet with you. So there, the, a, a huge amount of, of the uh, re- redemption, the salvation occurs among the Jews, happens at the, towards the end of the tribulation period. Just a couple of more verses to uh, point this out. Zechariah, Zephaniah, rather, 2, 1 and 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. See, you're to gather yourselves before the wrath occurs. So that's, I believe, what's happening now is this first regathering. It's a regathering in unbelief. The survival of Israel is one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of Scripture that we have in the early, I mean, in the 18th century. Uh, Frederick the Great 
who was a skeptic and a rational, enlightenment rationalist, inquired of his chaplain, said, how do you know the Bible is true? And his chaplain said, sir, uh, I can answer that in two words. He said, tell me in two words why you believe the Bible is true. And he said, your majesty, the Jews. The ongoing existence of Israel. And what we see in all of this is, first of all, that Israel will be gathered, regathered to the land before the tribulation in unbelief. Not complete, but there will be a, a restored presence of Israel in apostasy in the land before the tribulation period. There are two regatherings, one to the land, which is a physical regathering, and a second regathering that is spiritual that takes place at the end of the tribulation period. So we could chart it this way. Towards the end of the church age, there will be a regathering in unbelief based on passages that I've gone through already, Ezekiel 20, 32 to 38, Ezekiel 22, 17 to 22, 36, 22 to 24, Isaiah 11, 11 and 12, Zephaniah 2, 1 and 2. And then at the end of the tribulation, there will be a regathering in belief based on uh, all of those passages that are there, and this is when the Messiah comes and reestablishes the nation under the rule of the Messiah. So the second thing we see is that Israel will be regathered to the land through persecution and judgment. This is the context for calling out these 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, these Jewish evangelists, who will take the gospel primarily to Jews in the tribulation period. The third thing that we see from these passages is that Israel's regathering will be in stages. You had the first Aliyah in the 1890s, the second Aliyah after a Jewish pro, uh, Russian pogrom broke out against the Jews in 1905. Third Aliyah began after uh, World War uh, I ended, and then you had various other Aliyahs during the 30s and 40s. That's Israel regathered in stages, and then fourth, uh, finally, Israel's regathering to the land will be sequential and uninterrupted. It's not going to be stopped, and then they're all going to be scattered again. Remember, there's only two regatherings, according to Isaiah 11:11. 11, 11. It will happen on that day that the Lord will recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain. And so what we see in this is a fifth point, that modern Israel parallels the Israel that is predicted to exist in the end times. Now, Zionism is nothing more and nothing less than the belief that Jews have a right to a homeland, a nation, in their historic homeland. Now, a lot of people get messed up on this. I've had some arguments with people who ought to know better. Zionism doesn't mean you like every Jew. It doesn't mean that you go along with every decision Israel makes. That's not what Zionism is. Zionism, you, you can search your website. Zionism is nothing more, as stated in the first Zionist Congress that was called by Theodore Herzl in Basel in 1891, is that Zionism is nothing more than the belief that the Jews have a right to their own homeland. And I would add to it a right to defend their homeland, just like any other people. And they came out of the context of the emergence of nationalism in the 19th century, how many people? Germany was unifying for the first time. Italy was unifying for the first time. Throughout the world, you were seeing this, uh, these different peoples beginning to recognize their national identity and establishing their own nation. 
And Israel was just one of many groups that were doing that. You had the rise of Arab nationalism and all these other, other movements at that, that particular time. And so that's what Zionism is. Christian Zionism is just the belief by Christians that the Word of God teaches that Israel does have a right to their, their own country, their own land, and that this was given to them by God uh, in the Old Testament. Nothing more, nothing less. It doesn't mean you have to affirm or believe everything that Israel as a nation does, agree with it, or support it. But it does mean that we believe that Israel has a right to a national existence in their homeland and the right to defend themselves against their enemies. And, and that's it. And if we as a nation want to support them uh, to, for whatever reason, then that is good. It's not bad. For those who bless Israel will be blessed. So in the modern state of Israel, 1948, Israel became a state. In 1967, the Six-Day War, Jerusalem was recaptured and united as the capital. And in, for the last eight years, there's been a battle for the Temple Mount. Uh, who's going to control the Temple Mount? And that has really been seen by political leaders as key. Who controls the Temple Mount? So... In conclusion, what we see in the first eight verses of Revelation 7 is that God, and consistent with God's plan and purposes in history, God is going to bring Israel back to the land, and he's going to restore his emphasis on Israel, and he's going to call out these 144,000 Jewish evangelists who primarily go to the house of Israel. Remember how Jesus used to send his disciples out? But only go to the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. So it's going to be a restored emphasis so it fits within God's plan of history, bringing to conclusion that which began thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be uh, reminded of how faithful you are to your word, and that no matter how chaotic our lives may be, that you are still in control, and you will control things until the end of history. Father, we pray that you would also encourage us as we see the accuracy of your word in terms of these promises to know that your word is faithful and true. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do to be saved is to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The instant you trust in Christ, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, you are declared justified, you are born again, you receive eternal life, which can never be taken from you, and you are a child of God forever. Father, we pray that you would challenge, encourage each of us with what we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 486, Faith is the Victory. We'll sing the first verse and the last Number 486, and then I'm going to ask uh, Doug Carter if he'd please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the wonderful grace blessings that you have given us, both individually and as a congregation. And Father, as we face the upcoming challenges of uh, recovering from the storm, financial health challenges, and even upcoming political elections, that you will use these challenges to keep us focused on your testimony and, and on disseminating your word throughout this community. Father, we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.